The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 62. Hi, I'm Jarek Robbins, the author of Live It, Achieve Success by Living with Purpose. All the better if that purposeful life includes a podcast like this one. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. My belief, and and I think the premise of this book is that the critical skill right now, perhaps the critical skill of this century, is not what you know, it's how fast you can learn. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Thank you so much for checking out this show. Whether it's your first time here or you've been back several times, I really appreciate it. It is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each week, we sit down with a successful and inspiring author to talk about their latest book, and their insights and expertise on things like leadership and personal development, career, marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. Now, today we get to sit down for the second time with Liz Weissman, author of the new book, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. And in today's episode, I'm going to ask Liz to share some of the surprising observations that came out of her extensive research for the book. We'll talk about why inexperience is not only an advantage, but is desperately needed in today's world of work. I'll ask Liz about the four distinct modes of the Rookie Smarts mindset and quite a bit more. If you're all about getting more reading done in less time, I hope you'll check out our sponsor, that is Blinkist. They serve up inside their free app business book summaries that you can enjoy in about 15 to 20 minutes. Right now, they're offering to you, as a listener to this podcast, 30% off an annual subscription to Blinkist when you use the discount code READ TO LEAD. To try the service for free or to sign up right now, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Liz Weissman teaches leadership to executives around the world. She is the president of the Weissman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California, with some of her clients including Apple, Dubai Bank, Nike, PayPal, Salesforce.com, and Twitter. She's the author of several books, including The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and the book featured in episode 30 of this podcast when Liz made her first appearance here. She's conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and writes for Harvard Business Review and a variety of other business and leadership journals. A former executive at Oracle Corporation, she worked over the course of 17 years as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. Her new book is Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. Liz, it's a pleasure to have you back on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be back in this conversation with you, Jeff. Well, I remember being excited to learn the last time we spoke in episode 30 that you were working on a new book, and we talked then that it would be great if we could get back together and talk about it once it was out. So I'm excited to dive right into more about Rookie Smarts. And something you talk about in the very beginning of the book and the intro of the book is who the book is for. So that's my first question. Who is this book for ultimately? 
Well, you know, the book is is really for experienced professionals and for experienced managers. The book makes a case that in 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 the current world of work and with, you know, cycle spinning really fast, that drawing upon our experience and drawing upon our knowledge can be a real disadvantage and that people tend to actually do their best work, not when they have mastery or experience, but when they're operating as rookies, doing something important, something hard, and doing it for the very first time. And But the message isn't really to the kind of the newbie rookies, you know, the new early professional rookies. It's to those of us, I think, who have experience, years of experience, mastery, success, and it's how do we maintain our rookie smarts. I think that's the primary audience for the book. Well, you talk about inexperience not only being an advantage, but being desperately needed in, 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 in I think, if I'm quoting you correctly, uh, this rapidly evolving world of work, you call it. So why is it so desperately needed in, in your estimation? You know, it's interesting. I was just reading the New York Times today, and there's an op-ed column from Thomas Friedman. And, you know, I think a lot of people know him as um, the author of The World is Flat. Mm. And he wrote a fun column today, and he called it The World is Fast. <laughs> And I think he hits on, you know, what I think so many of us are are feeling. I mean, we all feel that the world of work is spinning really, really fast, that there is more and more information coming at us, that more information is available to, you know, uh, people around the world, meaning we have knowledge and information at our fingertips. And in, in many ways, we don't really need to retain it in our minds anymore. Our minds are becoming a lot like our mobile devices where they just need speed of access rather than a lot of storage. And our technology tools have um, allowed us to work everywhere, anywhere, anytime, which means these business cycles are really uh, spinning very, very fast, so fast that many professionals, many managers aren't facing the same problem twice. And our innovation cycles are spinning faster too, which means that the state of art is continually changing and the the expertise that we have, knowledge, information, it doesn't stay with us for very long. That it becomes obsolete faster, it evaporates faster. Um, I was looking at a number of um, kind of statistics. I was looking at the rate at which information is increasing, the rate at which it's becoming obsolete. And I put a few of these stats together and, and realized that if you work in technology, in science or technology, you know, in the STEM fields, about 15% of what you know today is going to be relevant in five years, mm. which feels a little unsettling. And you may say, well, I don't, I don't work in technology, but, you know, let's name an industry that isn't being disrupted by technology or isn't, you know, in some ways all companies are becoming software companies. And most of the work that we do is so technology infused at this point that those same cycles of change and obsolescence are applying to us. And, you know, it's really... My belief, and and I think the premise of this book is that the critical skill right now, and perhaps the critical skill of this century, is not what you know, it's how fast you can learn. And and we find that when people are in this kind of rookie mode, meaning doing something important and hard for the very first time, they tend to actually be at their best. We all, you know, we think, oh, no, this is where we're sort of clueless and bumbling. (laughs) It tends to provoke top performance. And, and that was really the essence of um, my research. 
And speaking of research, if I know anything about you, it's, it's that I know that when you write a book, a lot of research goes into it uh, beforehand. And you've hinted at some of this. I know when you were doing research for this book, there were, were four major surprising observations uh, that came out of that. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that's just the core of the research is that we looked at about 400 different work scenarios. You know, and it could be anything from develop a training course to debug uh, a software program to build out a corporate campus. And we looked at how experienced people do that work and how inexperienced people. You know, I, I kind of in the book refer to them as veterans and rookies, meaning how do we work when we're in sort of a veteran mode? We've done it before. And how do we work when we're in a rookie mode? We looked at how people think, how people behave, what they tend to do, and also how well they perform. And here's what we found studying across those diverse scenarios is, number one, we found that rookies are really surprisingly strong performers. Um, in, when we look at the performance across broad industries, people with experience tend to perform at higher levels than rookies, but it's by a very, very small margin, which surprised me. But when you cut that data in the knowledge industries, we find that rookies tend to outperform people with experience, particularly in the area of innovation and speed, surprisingly. Hmm. We tend to be faster when we don't know what we're doing. You know, go figure. <laughs> and, and, and it was really interesting to see why that was. I think the second thing that was surprising is that when we looked at the highest performing rookies and the highest performing veterans, we found that they work in radically different ways. But when we looked at the bottom performers, the failure profile looks very similar. It really is operating from a place of hubris. And, you know, I think having experience isn't itself a problem. But, you know, it's the hubris that comes with that. And that's, I think, one of the other things that, that we found in this research is that experience does create a number of really troubling blind spots. Um, you know, of course, with experience comes a number of virtues. We are competent we build maybe a strong reputation, we can attract resources, we're good at marshalling resources, we actually have better powers of intuition when we're experienced. You know, I think more and more we're learning that intuition is our brain kind of really rapidly scanning all of the data points that we have stored, which is why we can come to these kind of quick judgments on things. But we can come to really quick judgments and you know, with experience comes um, some real blind spots. We can stop seeing new possibilities we can stop seeking new input, we can stop seeking feedback, and we can stop going down new paths. Meaning, essentially, when we're experienced, we tend to operate solo. Kind of like, um, hey, I got this. <laughs> you know, and if anyone has teenage children, you probably hear this a lot. I hear it a lot from my teenagers, like, hey, mom, I got this. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, I actually don't think you got it. <laughs> but we, we kind of go like, hey, I know how to do this, I'm good, no problemo, no worries, and we go. And we can, there's a whole set of things that we miss once we know the answer, once we recognize a pattern. Our brains kind of go into this rapid pattern recognition, and we can miss some really, really important changes in the environment. And I think the last thing that was surprising is that rookies really aren't what we seem. You know, we, we think of rookies as these kind of um, bumbling, you know, kind of clueless. I spend a lot of time going through airports. And you know, I think of like that person in the, the TSA security line who just seems like baffled 
that their laptop has to come out of their bag. And you're like, what? Huh? I can't bring water through here? And you're like, oh, rookie move. You're slowing us all down. But we found that rookies actually are remarkably alert. When we don't know what we're doing, we operate kind of eyes wide open and uh, we pay attention. We listen. We ask questions. Um, we think of them as sort of naive. Uh, we find that they're actually very politically astute because they don't know the lay of the land. And so they're paying attention to a lot of signals. And it's this fact, um, you know, that they're, they're, they're more open. They're more likely to ask for help. You know, we sometimes think of rookies as kind of off clueless in a direction. Actually, we ask for help. We, um, we listen to other people. We, we work cautiously. We, we work quickly. And it's why we tend to perform so well when we don't really know what we're doing. When you hear words like rookie versus veteran or inexperience versus experience, it can be easy to erroneously assume, I think, that oh, we're talking about young versus old. But, but Liz, you say it's, it's much more about thinking like a newcomer than anything else, right? You know, absolutely. Rookie smarts is not a function. And rookie smarts is the term that I use for how we tend to think and how we tend to act when we're aware that we're doing something for the first time. Mm. It's a very sort of predictable pattern of behavior and thinking that we go into. It's not a function of age, and it's actually not even a function of experience. Although we tend to think and act this way when we don't have experience, what was so interesting is I found so many people that I came to call perpetual rookies who, despite years of experience and mastery, they retain this, the rookie smart, this young, vibrant way of thinking and acting. And it's, it's a way of thinking and working that really is available to people at all experience levels, which is why I think this book isn't about, you know, it's not for the young and the professional newcomers. It's for everyone who wants to stay relevant. Mm. It's for everyone who wants to live and work on the steep side of the learning curve, which is a little bit scary but we find is totally exhilarating. Eliza's research shows that the, the rookie smarts mindset is characterized by four distinct modes with a, a chapter that she dedicates to each one. Now, before we jump into those, Liz, I think it's important to point out that as we outline each of these, you're not attempting to categorize people, but rather behaviors, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for example, for example, um, my, you know, my first book, Multipliers, was literally the first thing I had ever written that was longer than an email or a Christmas letter. <laughs> and um, I didn't tell my publisher that, of course. I didn't announce uh, that completely. I think they probably knew that, though. I, I, I was a total rookie. You know, I was a total rookie. And so there I was. I think I was, oh, I don't know, mid-40s when that came out. You know, I'm a mature, experienced professional, but I am in rookie mode. And when I look back at how I approached that book, I can see all those kinds of signs. You know, fast forward four years, I'm writing my third book, and I can see how I tend to operate in veteran mode on that, often drawing on, oh, here's how I did it before. Mm. And I had to work really hard on this book to keep this sense of rookie smart. So it really is a statement of the modes that we, we operate in. And, and any given thing, you know, you might be in one meeting and you're really drawing upon your, your veteran savvy. But then you might go into another meeting and the conditions are such where you're like, you know what, I think I need to play the rookie <laughs> in this. Uh, maybe I know too much. Maybe what I know is getting in the way of what I don't know. 
that need to learn or to understand. And we can sort of toggle between these modes. Well, let's dig into to each of the modes a little bit more if we can. What does it mean, Liz, to act like or think like, I should say, a, a backpacker versus caretaker? Yeah, backpacker is the, the name I gave to the way that we, we tend to operate because we're unencumbered. So when we're new to something, we tend to be unencumbered by um, data, by knowledge, by information. And um, we also, you know, don't hold a lot of um, assumptions. And, you know, so we're kind of thinking light, you know, we're sort of lightweight. And because mm-hmm. we're knowledge lightweight, we're not taking a lot of baggage with us. And, you know, any experienced traveler, and you could see it, you know, kind of the whole, there's a theme through the whole book, sort of a travel thing about sort of venturing out. And in like a, a traveler who's traveling light, you know, you just, your options open up to you, um, you know, and, and you can think about like, you know, when you're that traveler and you're traveling light, but one of your travel companions packed what I, um, I refer to as a girly bag, <laughs> <laughs> meaning, you know, one of those huge suitcases where you brought every pair of shoes you own. And when your travel companion brings that huge bag, you just know, okay, that's just slowed us down. Mm-hmm. Like there's whole places that we can't go now because we're packing our whole house. And, and it's very similar to how we work professionally and intellectually, is that when we travel light, we tend to venture out, we can go into places other people can't go because we're unencumbered. And often what we're unencumbered with is just a simple knowledge that what we're doing is hard. (laughs) I mean, how many things have you started because you just didn't know they were hard? And so you say yes. And in some ways, it's the boldness of a rookie is we say yes to things because we just don't know the problems that await around the corner. We're unencumbered. That's a backpacker, and I compare it to how we operate, you know, with experience. We become more like caretakers, or, I mean, even for those, for those you know, of us who are campers, you know, the, the experience of, of car camping where, you know, you take so much stuff with you and you've got to do all the setup and the maintenance that you don't, you don't really venture out. Mm. Sort of the relaxing weekend in the wild turns out to be sort of more of the usual grind and just sort of a backache because we end up protecting and caring for the things that we've amassed our professional knowledge, our professional reputation. I love the, the Doug Larson quote at the beginning of that uh, chapter on backpackers. Some of the world's greatest feats were accomplished by people not smart enough to know they were impossible. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is also kind of a reference to, you know, a, the delightful book that I think, well, you know, when you stumble on one of those books where you, like the rest of the world has read it and you just discover it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it, for me, that was the Phantom Tollbooth, mm. uh, Norton Juice's book, you know, about you know, this boy who gets asked to do this impossible thing, you know, in this, in this kind of little fantasy world where everything is crazy. And, you know, the, the king who gives him this challenge, you know, in, which in the end he's victorious at, you know, he says, well, I'm not going to, there's a part of it I'm not going to tell you about. And at the end, the little boy says, well, what was it that you were going to tell me once I, I was victorious? He said, oh, I, you know, that it was impossible. And I think often just because we don't know how hard something is, we're willing to try. I think so many of us get encumbered by the burden, the barriers, the things that go wrong. And often rookies just don't even see it, and they walk us right past those obstacles. Well, next is the, the, uh, what you call the hunter-gatherer type rookie versus local guide. So, so what is that type like? You know, when we are in this hunter-gatherer mode, and when we're kind of in a rookie assignment, 
um, you know, again, at any age, we tend to go into one or more of these modes at any given time. And the hunter-gatherer mode is the mode of pointing yourself outward and seeking the expertise of others. Um, we asked in this research how many experts the experienced person went out and sought in this, to, you know, to master this piece of work, and how many an inexperienced or rookie. And we find a 5x differential meaning that when we don't know what we're doing, we tend to go out and very logically, if you don't know, you've got to go find someone who does know. And so they become these like little heat, little knowledge seeking missiles. And, you know, I call it hunter gatherer mode because they're kind of leaving the comfort of the, the tribe, so to speak. And they're going outward to find expertise and then to gather it in. And we find, you know, if you ask someone with experience to do a job, you get, generally one person's expertise. But if you ask someone without experience, you can get five times the level of expertise or more. That's simply an average. It's the network effect of not knowing, sort of gathering in people around you who know, getting this more diverse point of view, sort of getting out of the echo chamber that you know we often just sort of bounce, hear bouncing um, off the walls of our social media, sort of voices that think very similarly to, to our own. And you know, so we're, we're gathering expertise versus, you know, this mode of, you know, kind of the local mode where, you know, and I think the best way to describe sort of how we operate with experience is kind of like, you know, the old codgers sitting around Joe Bob's coffee shop. <laughs> you know, and we've all seen them. And sometimes we've been them, you know, kind of describing the journey of the past, talking about the same old issues, same old stories, you know, while the world is changing really fast around us. Well, describe for us, Liz, as we move into the third one, what you mean by uh, the firewalker rookie. You know, the firewalker mode is, um, this is one of my favorites because the data was so puzzling to me initially. I kept looking through the data and, you know, we did all this correlation analysis. And as I'm looking through the data, I found something I thought was kind of baffling, that rookies tend to be really cautious, kind of slow starters, Hmm. very aware, listening. Um, Someone described it as kind of, eyes open, mouth shut. <laughs> and we're cautious because we don't know what we're doing. We're cautious because, um, you know, maybe all eyes are on us. And we realize that there's a really big knowledge gap between what we know and what we have to know and what we have to do. So we pay attention to everything. But I also found in the data that we tend to be really fast in our rookie mode. And I'm like, cautious, but fast. That doesn't quite make sense to me. And, and then I put it together. I said, I realize it's a lot like... Um, the coal walker. And, um, you know, I think there's this belief that, you know, walking the hot coals is some sort of mind over matter, supernatural feat. And it really isn't. Coals are just poor conductors of heat, (laughs) which means they transfer heat slowly to your feet. So if you move fast, you don't get burned. And, and I think in our rookie mode, we tend to operate like fire walkers that, you know, we're cautious because we know what we're doing is dangerous. Uh, but we move really fast so that we don't get burned. And, and as we move fast, we're, um, we're operating in these kind of thin little um, kind of experiments. Hey, how's this? How's this? And we're getting feedback along the way. Whereas when we're experienced, uh, you know, we tend to operate more like at the pace of marathoners. And, you know, if anyone has run a marathon, you know that it's all about pacing yourself. Mm-hmm. I've blown it once, <laughs> kind of sprinting the, 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 the early half and sort of losing steam. So we learn with experience to pace ourselves, to operate steady and consistent. And it sounds so good, so virtuous, but 
it can be a very troubling way to work when the course changes, when the environment changes, and you know sometimes rookies are sprinting past us while we are kind of bracing ourselves for the long haul in the marathon, which we may never get to the end to because the game has changed midway through the course. And then the last of the four, the the comparison you make is to that of a pioneer versus a settler. Yeah, you know, when we are out on a frontier, we operate in very predictable ways. So, you know, in our working mode, we're, we're out on the knowledge frontier. And, you know, we don't have the resources we need. We don't have the knowledge we need. We don't have the networks we need. And so we tend to operate like frontiersmen where we're we operate sort of scrappy. We improvise. We make do with the basics. In fact... All of our focus is around the basics because, you know, there's not a lot of energy or time for luxuries. So we meet very basic needs. And, you know, if, if you've studied or have used anything from the lean and agile movements that are not just sweeping startups and tech companies, but so many companies trying to implement lean, this is the way that we tend to work when we're new to something. We, we operate like we focus, okay, what's the I think the lean principle is what's the minimal amount of functionality I can deliver to the client that will satisfy them. And so let's deliver just that, see how it goes, and then iterate on that. And we do the next sprint. And it's interesting, they call them sprints. And so we tend to focus on the basics, often delivering exactly what the customer needs because we don't know how to... um, we don't know how to complexify it yet. You know? <laughs> we, do, we don't have that much sophistication. So we tend to meet the, uh, the core needs and do it brilliantly because we're in Honestly, we're in survival mode. Um, and I think that, you know, when I look across these modes, the power really comes, I think, from anxiety, from having low confidence. And I don't mean low self-confidence. I mean low situational confidence. When we're facing this big knowledge gap and we've got to do something important and hard, a certain desperation kicks in. And I think it fuels this desperation-based learning, which we all know is the most powerful form of learning. You know, because when do you really learn how to do something? You know, you really learn how to do something when there's no choice but to, when it's too (laughs) painful not to, which is why we tend to really be at our best when we're in this rookie zone doing work that we don't know how to do yet. I know in my own life, if there's something that I want to accomplish, the, the best thing I can do is set a deadline for that thing and then announce, uh, announce the deadline to the world. <laughs> and then I will find a way to make it happen at that point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the power of signing a contract. Mm. You know, like for me with books, I can futz around and I can think about it. But something kicks in when I say yes. And I sign a contract and then you go, well, <laughs> I guess I better deliver on it. And it's not because it's a financial contract. It's that you've kind of gone public. Mm. You know, and we know the power of going public with um, certain kind of personal development goals. Mm-hmm. But it's why that when sometimes the gap is big and all eyes are watching us, you know, we kick in to this really productive um, and powerful mode of working. Mm. Well, I want to throw a hypothetical, if I can, at you, Liz. I actually know someone who's going through this very thing right now, uh, but we'll just say it's me for for sake of argument here. So I'm being interviewed, let's say, by a well-known company to be their new CTO. Now, while have, technology officer. Yes, yeah. And so while having experienced many successes in my career, I have no prior C-level experience. And, and the CEO is attempting to determine you know, my C-level worthiness, uh, as it were. How can I convince him or her that I might actually be the best choice for that very reason? 
You know, the CTO is a really, really interesting one. I think these principles play across it, but CTO is interesting because if you talk to chief technology officers right now, they will say the world around them is changing really fast. Mm. You know, the world of big data and cloud computing kind of changes everything. It's what's fueling this whole artificial intelligence movement where now, you know, these computers and machines and systems know a lot about us and they can, you know, start to get very precise. And one of the people that um, I profile in the book is uh, a a CIO, uh, very similar to a chief technology officer. And he talked about being asked to give a presentation um, at a conference to come and talk about, you know, what he was doing. I think it was with cloud computing or big data. I can't remember which one it was. And rather than kind of assemble together the standard PowerPoint presentations, this kind of show up and throw up, you know, (laughs) set of slides, he did something different. He went in with his list of things. Here are things I don't know. But I know that these are questions that we have to figure out to be able to really build a big data capability. And it turned out to be one of the best sessions in the whole conference. I think the conference organizer said it was the very best session. And it ended up attracting a whole community of other CTOs who were struggling with these same things. And collectively, they're now finding answers. And I think it reflects the nature of these jobs. Um, But that's one thing. What about if you're the one who wants the job, but your manager, the hiring manager, doesn't see it that way? They they want someone with experience. Well, one, I think you can share with them the research. That's one way to do it. But, you know, what I would do if I were out there trying to seek a rookie assignment, I would try to, to focus on, I think it's really the power of one, one step. My own experience in my own career and and watching other people is that most managers are willing to take a risk on someone, but only with one leap of faith. Meaning, I, I hear a lot of people say, "I'm gonna, I want to change roles, and I want to move out of for profit to nonprofit." Or, you know, they talk about these changes they want to make, and 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 you know, certainly someone may read Rookie Smarts and go, "Wow, I feel like I need to get back into my rookie state. I need to go do something hard that I haven't done before," and they start gunning for a big challenge. Well, a lot of managers aren't going to take more than a one-step leap. So what I mean by that is you might be changing uh, levels to a higher level management. You might also be changing industries or roles or companies. So if you are new to the company and you've um, never been operating at a C level, that is, you know, kind of a two, two-step jump. A lot of managers aren't willing to take that. Like if you're new to the industry and you haven't done the C-level, they're like, hey, I'll risk you on a one-size-up stretch. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we can isolate it down to here's the one piece that is a rookie assignment for me, I think people are willing to take that risk. The other thing is, and I think this is perhaps the, the biggest predictor of success of someone, you know, um, a predictor of success in a rookie assignment, a stretch assignment is do they have a track record of other stretch assignments? And I think if you can show, here are a number of places where I made that one level or even a two kind of size up stretch, mm. people can see that actually your core skill is taking on stretch challenges. And they can say, you know what, I have enough faith <laughs> that you can do that. So I would focus on a track record where you've been successful moving up in levels of management and isolating it down to the one variable that you're new to. 
Well, the case studies and the research have made it a really enjoyable read for me. I've gotten a lot out of it so far. We've spent much of our time today talking about part one of the book and the various modes. Part two of the book goes on to talk about cultivating rookie smarts in your own life and within your company as well. Liz, is there anything else about the book you'd like to make sure we know before we go on to a couple of other questions not directly related to it? Yeah, you know, sure. I, I think we've been focusing or I've been focusing on, you know, that we tend to do our best work and we tend to be really top performers in this rookie space. But here's the thing that I didn't study directly, but that I really learned in this process is that not only do these rookie assignments prompt our best thinking and our best work, it's, it's where we find our greatest satisfaction. I mean, I've asked a lot of people and, and you might think about, you know, one of your own rookie assignments, you know, not only what you did, but what you didn't do, what you didn't worry about and and what it felt like. And as I ask people to reflect on this, I often hear people say, you know, I felt great. I want to be a rookie again. I felt alive. I was having so much fun. I was learning so much. It's this combination of learning and performing that tends to bring such great satisfaction. Uh, I did a survey. It was about a thousand people and we asked them, how much challenge is there in your job? And then we asked them, how satisfied are you in your job? And what we found, I thought it was fascinating, is that there's a near perfect linear correlation between the two, meaning as our challenge level goes up in our work, so does our satisfaction. Mm. And as it goes down, so does our satisfaction. It's like we actually crave this. Um, (laughs) We ask people on average how soon they're ready for their next challenge. And they said it takes about three months to wrestle down Mm. a challenge. And I don't mean a new job. I mean a new puzzle, problem, a mm-hmm. challenge, something to kind of bite your teeth into, something to figure out, that they're ready for the next one immediately. You know, maybe they need a day or two to kind of like catch their breath. Right. But that, you know, really smart leaders will not only give people a pat on the back, but they'll give them a push out into the zone because this is where people are going to perform at their best, but it's also where they're going to be their most satisfied. If you want a shortcut <laughs> to increasing satisfaction on your team, if you're a manager, give people more challenge. Share some of your challenge. And, and if you want to be happier with your work, increase the degree of difficulty. Sign up to do something hard. Um, don't take the route of the comfortable, easy work that you know how to do it. Actually, it drags us down. It's sort of soul-crushing to us. <laughs> I think that's the thing that probably was most interesting to me in this research. Definitely. I'm wondering, uh, Liz, if you can name for us, we ask this of every guest, uh, a couple of books that you've read or are currently reading that have impacted you and maybe share how or why those books have impacted you as they have. Well, you know, um, while I was writing this book, um, there were two, you know, kind of fun novels that I read that were very related. One was The Phantom Tollbooth, which I referenced. Just It's beautiful because it's it's really for adults. It's just disguised as a children's um, <laughs> book. It's mm. clever. It's like a Pixar movie that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I read The Alchemist, mm-hmm. which um, I, I thought was really interesting names. But um, a couple of books that I've read recently that I, I have found very interesting, um, A More Beautiful Question, okay. uh, I, I think is fantastic. The Power of Inquiry and Asking um, Creativity Inc. Ed, Ed Catmull's book. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great, and you know, I have to admit to being extraordinarily jealous when I read it because <laughs> you know it's it's a story of Pixar and how they maintain this you know 
this um, hit machine. Yes. And I read it, and not only is it a story of Pixar, which in and of itself makes a great book, but I'm like, wow, he just described multiplier leadership and rookie smarts <laughs> all in this book. So I was very jealous that he could do his one book, but it, it took me, it took me two. Um, yeah, those are a couple that I've read yeah. recently. Next up on my list, um, sort of celebrating, having been done with this book, I'm reading Bill Hybels' uh, Simplify 10 um, Practices to Unclutter Your Soul. I thought that sounded um, very interesting. I love Bill Hybels. I'll have to definitely uh, check that out. And I just finished Creativity, Inc., uh, but I hadn't thought about uh, that comparison of sort of combining multipliers and rookie smarts all in one. (laughs) Well, because you weren't filled with rage and jealousy, were you? (laughs) No, I wasn't. I I really think it's a fantastic, fantastic book. I've enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, It was the focus of of a mastermind group that I'm in, and it was uh, part of our uh, of our reading uh, together that we did. And when you get together, each week and talk about it and, and pick it apart and that sort of thing. It was actually reading that book um, that gave me the idea. We just put a little fun video together around Ricky Smart um, based, inspired by Woody and Buzz from mm. Toy Story. That the sort of the veteran uh, toy, you know, the kind <laughs> of the leader of the toys that gets very rattled by the upstart toy, Buzz. Mm. And it's kind of about how Buzz um, helps Woody get his groove back. So we actually put a little book trailer together that has doesn't have those characters, but I think follows a similar storyline. Uh, of all the case studies shared, one of my favorites, uh, going back to the book for just a second, was uh, the Nike sort of all-day session where one executive sort of taps some, some new employees to, to handle this major all-day event and presentation. And now it's something that, that, that Nike does and renews like yearly. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's a story of Gina Warren, who was the um, uh, head of diversity and inclusion. And she was asked to put together a day of the executive retreat, their annual kind of top 50 executives. And the day was to focus on the culture of, of Nike and how that could be a, a competitive advantage, you know, having this very unique Nike culture. And as she thought about the past and the present of the culture, she felt very um, capable to put this piece together. But when she thought about the future of Nike's culture, she realized she wasn't really the future. And, and so she asked a few newcomers to the organization to just, you know, toss around a few ideas. And she was so inspired by their, the sort of, unencumbered hopefulness and their willingness to just take this on. She invited them to leave this party of the meeting. And then she got so enamored with how they stepped up to this, these young people, like 22, 23 years old, right out of school. She actually gave them the entire day with the top 50 executives. I mean, think about this, you know, for those of us who think of our own company and the top executives and how carefully those sessions are orchestrated to not waste these senior leaders time. She turned it over to eight brand new college graduates and she said, you take the lead, you know what, make it good. Mm. And she turned it over to them and it was this kind of awe-inspiring experience for the executives who actually got to be mentored by new college grads. They got to learn about Nike through the lens of these new college grads um, it was fascinating. They set it up speed dating style so executives could meet with a number of different uh, young people in these, like, I don't know, 15-minute blocks. You could, they could hardly get the executives to move on to the next group because they were so enthralled with these young people. 
and they and they formalized this. They call it the new crew. And I think it's a great example that brilliant ideas come from all levels of the organization. And I can't count how many organizations I've worked for where you know the the, the top level brass and 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 so organizations where I was a part of this group. Yeah, you, know, you know the 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 most experienced getting together, having weekly meetings, deciding on what we're going to do next and what the future of the company is. And 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 those uh, in in newer positions or newer in their jobs aren't even invited to to these meetings, let alone presenting at them. Yeah, or running them. Yeah, yeah, and I think about just how uh, in hindsight just just how how mistaken we were by, by not giving them the opportunity to teach us a thing or two along the way. You know, and I, I, I spent a lot of time working with executives. I mean, I spent a fair bit of time being one um, in my days at Oracle, coached a lot of executives, and I get to teach a lot of them around the world. Here's one of the lesser-known little secrets of being executive. First, the job is really hard. <laughs> I think we underestimate how hard their job is, how much pressure is on them to know, to perform, to have answers. And we put them in this kind of know-it-all mode as if we're going to like go up on high to like, you know, up on the mount to get these answers. Um, (laughs) But here's what you often don't really know is that these executives, they're winging it too. Mm. They don't really know what they're doing, particularly if they're in a growth company or in an industry that's really dynamic. They're learning alongside everyone else. And honestly, one of the reasons why they're kind of grumpy (laughs) is because they wish they could be rookies again too. Mm. They really love an opportunity when they get to step out of the, the knowledge chair and they get to sort of sit at the learning desk, so to speak, mm. and they get to learn from uh, people inside and outside the company. They're hungry for it. They're craving it. Um, and I think that's how you really build a rookie smart culture mm. is you give your senior leaders permission to really be learners and you give them meaningful chances to follow and not just lead. Well, Liz, is it too early to ask what's next on the horizon for you, what, what, what you're working on in the next few weeks and months? Oh, it is too early. That's almost <laughs> cruel uh, because really what's next is a nap. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, uh, okay, so I have, to, I have to check to make sure that my husband is nowhere in the vicinity because, you know, he told me if he knew I was talking about these things um, before resting. But um, I, I do have to admit I have um, written a first draft of a, children's book oh, um, wow. it's on a topic that i just um it's really meaningful to me it's actually it's um i i don't want to con- compare it to phantom Tollbooth, but it's it's a, a children's book for adults and mm. it's a little bedtime story and um that's something i i want to do something with and i do i you know i think there'll be another uh, business quote leadership mm. book uh, there's some stuff that i'm been working on in the background and you know i think i might actually do something around um, followership. You know, when you study leadership, you learn a lot about followership. And mm-hmm. I've learned a lot about um, how to work with executives and how they think, how they work, and how to really be influential um, with, with senior executives. It's kind of the art of really great followership, which then becomes leadership. But I don't know. I need a little break. <laughs> <laughs> sure, absolutely. Well, if you if you just can't wait to spend even more time with Liz, be sure and check out um, our first conversation going back to, again, episode 30. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 030. Liz, it's been a pleasure having you on again. I love Rookie Smarts. I recommend it to everyone in every organization. Thank you so much for, for taking time to be on the show. 
Well, Jeff, thank you for taking the time to read the book and for your questions and, you know, um, just the chance to talk with you about how we stay relevant in this crazy, wonderful world of work we're in. I certainly hope you enjoyed our chat with Liz. To find out more about her book and to pick up your own copy or to check out the other books and resources Liz mentioned and our first interview with Liz back in episode 30, just visit the show notes page for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 062 for episode 62. Remember our sponsor, if you haven't checked out Blinkist yet, I encourage you to do that. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist and use the discount code READTOLEAD should you decide to spring for an annual subscription. And by the way, if you have a business book lover in your life, a subscription to Blinkist makes a great Christmas gift. An annual subscription is just $35 with that discount code Read to Lead. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist to find out more. Finally, I want to say thanks to each and every five-star review that came in in the last few days. We couldn't get to all of them last week. Some of the ones we weren't able to get to then are five-star reviews from Alex, Corey, Teresa, Joey, Cami, Lisa, another Lisa, Christina, Thomas, Andrew, Angela, Jeremy, Crystal, B, Nikolai, and West Coast Cowgirl. Thanks to each and every one of you for your five-star rating and generous review. If you'd like to leave a rating and review, simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. That does it for this episode. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.